the Enneagram Journey with Suzanne Stabile. Exciting episode that we pulled from last year. It was lost and now it's found. Conversation with Enneagram 8, Nadia Bowles-Weber and Suzanne. They're going to talk about grieving, what is grace. Nadia tells a really interesting story about the time that she uh, got to talk with Lance Armstrong. They're going to cover compassion, the difference between transparency and vulnerability. And of course, we're going to talk about her last book, Shameless, which you probably heard me mention. I loved it. I went ahead and double dipped and read that back to back with The Soul of Shame. And we're going to talk about her podcast, The Confessional. Before you continue to listen to this episode, a handful of times the old F bomb is going to get dropped. And I am not one to edit the Nadia Bowles Weber. So if that doesn't sit well with you and you don't want to hear it, no need to slam the podcast or this episode. Just skip this one and uh, wait for the next one or go back and re-listen to some others. You can find out more about Nadia and all she's doing at the link in the show notes, NadiaBowlesWeber.com. LTM plug time. Grieving in the Enneagram is around the corner. We've had so many people sign up for this. It's going to be great. As great as a, a grieving workshop can be. That's the average side of seven here from me. It's going to be February 26th and 27th. It's going to be streamed online, live. And when you register, you have access to the replay for about two more weeks to mid-March. It's eight hours of teaching, five to nine Central Standard Time each night. Live Q&A in interaction with the audience. I hope you'll join us. You can find that link, info, and registration at lifeinthetrinityministry.com. You know what else you can find at lifeinthetrinityministry.com? You'll be able to find a series on Lent, a video series with the Reverend, accompanied by Suzanne. Joe and Suzanne will be releasing a video each week of Lent, helping you understand the liturgy and hoping to walk through Lent with you from Fat Tuesday all the way to Easter Sunday. You'll find that link at lifeinthetrinityministry.com. I don't know if I've mentioned that yet. Um, that's a free video series, and it is just really, really a great watch. Now, on to Nadia and Suzanne. Golly, so much has happened. So much has happened. Yeah. So I, I want to start by acknowledging your unbelievably beautiful relationship with Rachel. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I think I will always uh, use the relationship between the two of you as um, a teaching space around how difference expresses itself between two people who agree on the important things. Yeah. 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 I, I, um, I held it together somewhat. Um, you know, Jeff, Jeff Chu and Sarah Bessie and I did the, we were there, you know, when she was dying and then we, we did most of the planning of her funeral. And I, you know, I, I made sure that all the, all of the alumni speakers from Y Christian could stay in two houses together. And I arranged that and I just kind of tended to a lot and kind of pastored a lot. And then as soon as the last person left our Airbnb, 
the, the day after the funeral, and it was just me and Jeff, I just broke down, yeah. just sobbing, couldn't breathe, sobbing, like absolutely, you know, lost it. And and I I always say that his, he, you know, he's maybe half my size, Jeff Chu, and he, um, but his arms were strong enough to, to hold me. And the thing that, um, the thing that was really part of that um, moment was this realization of gratitude and loss around, there was just something magic about what she and I were used to do yeah. in the world. And um, like immense gratitude for getting to be a part of that, but also just going, oh, that was it, because we had talked about we would do something new, you know, something different together mm -hmm. in the future, and just knowing that's not there. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of my grief was over the specific, the alchemy between the two of us was just yep. incredible. So It was. It was magical, and it was palpable. I got to be part of Why Christian twice, and it was you could, you know me, I'm all about feelings, but I could feel it. I think everybody could. Yeah. Um, so. It, it was so simple too. Those events were, so, one of the things I loved about it was it, they were so powerful and there was, they were just so simple. Like yeah. all it was, was gather a really diverse group of women and women identified and trans folks, mostly women of color, people whose voices are not usually at the center, and simply say, you each have 20 minutes to tell us who you are and why, why are you Christian? Like of all the crimes and misdemeanors of Christianity that we can all detail, you still have skin in the game and tell us about that. And there's not a, you know, strong tradition right now of testimony in more progressive Christian circles. And it was so simple, and I think that's why it worked. There was nothing terribly lofty about it. Right, right. Um, yeah, you, you know, my language that I use all the time is, how can I set the table for this? How can we set the table for that? And I, I would just have to say that you all set the, the most <clears throat> welcoming table. Oh, thank you, yeah. Yeah, a real peak experience of my life was hosting those events with her for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love the confessional. Yeah. So I'm going to start by telling you, um, when I first uh, became Catholic, you know, I grew up United Methodist and I taught in a Catholic high school and, uh, then they asked me to teach theology. And then I kind of got absorbed into the Catholic church for 10 years. Yeah. And then I got Joe and we left together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> My favorite thing when I first became Catholic was going to confession. Mm. Why? Like I loved it. I loved it so much because I felt free. Mm -hmm. And I was so aware that I felt closest to God mm. than I'd ever felt leaving confession. Mm. And then uh, I, I kind of got addicted to it. Yeah. And so I started going so often that the parish priest finally one day said, Suzanne, you, you can't come back for two weeks. 
<laughs> he said, being impatient with your children, honestly, uh, it isn't worth standing in line for. <laughs> and I, um, interestingly enough, in going to confession, started with all the big stuff mm. and then worked my way down to just wanting to feel that feeling again. Mm. I knew I was forgiven, but I wanted to feel the connection again. Yeah. And when I, I, I've listened to all the podcasts that are available on the confessional. And when I listen, I'm aware that, um, they are so full and brief. Mm -hmm. And that's the nature of confession, isn't mm -hmm. it? It's like, if, if you're going to confess, then you want to get right to your business right. and get it done and then leave. Right. This is a quote from you. I think it's word for word. I don't see much grace, curiosity, compassion for people in our public life. Uh, me either. Where do you think it went? Well, I think that, you know, social media giveth and social media taketh away. And I think just the nature of the beast right now where everybody has access to creating a platform. Um, you don't have to be educated. You don't have to be an excellent communicator. You don't, you know, there's no sort of requirements other than people follow you and listen to you. And I think that the most, um, the most extreme, the angriest, the, the most ideological voices are rewarded in a way that they weren't when, you know, you had, you know, four news channels to listen to in terms right. in a few national papers. Now, um, there were faults with that system in terms of the marginalization of certain voices that didn't get to be heard. And I recognize that. But um, yeah, I think that the more extreme you are, the more you're rewarded. Uh, and I think, you know, it's interesting, one of the reasons I started the confessional or started this whole stage of my, of my life is trying to figure out how can I, a few things, how can I be a pastoral voice and a pastoral presence to people who are not likely to really step into a church, first of all. Second of all, uh, you know, human beings have always been religious, always, throughout history, time, culture, every single every single people have fashioned for themselves religion of some sort. And just because we had the enlightenment and we've elevated human reason, you know, we got some great things out of that, namely the scientific method and certain institutions. But uh, as Charles Taylor said, the enlightenment gave with one hand and stole with the other. And so what the enlightenment did not do is take away the needs within the human being that religion has always met. And one of those is where do you receive a blessing? Uh, you know, being able to write blessings at the end of my podcast has sort of scratched my preaching itch to a large extent uh, recently. And, and I think, where do we go to receive a blessing anymore? And I wonder if, 
in a sort of ersatz way, we've traded it for likes. Oh, fascinating. Like that's our, that we don't know where in the world do we receive a blessing. So at least, so we can just count the likes our posts get, you know? So, yeah. And isn't it interesting that approval, very limited approval is actually probably not a blessing. No. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's exactly right. And, and I think sometimes the approval it comes from not, not the most generous spaces within our psyches. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. In that quote, the three things that you mentioned were grace, curiosity, and compassion. Mm. How long has curiosity been kind of a, something that y'all been asking about? The first time I heard someone say, you know, why aren't people curious anymore was Brian McLaren. For, this is just the first time I heard it. Brian McLaren, about a year and a half ago, uh, said it in a conversation. And then you've been asking people, you know, what are you curious about? We're not curious anymore. And so that, that was one of the quotes that I heard also for that reason was curiosity being with grace and compassion. Can you all give a little bit of background on that? Well, my mother always said, look, once, you, once you're sure you're right, you no longer take in new information. You know, I mean, I think curiosity requires a certain amount of humility, you know, to say, I don't know everything. And so I want to know more. Well, I, and I think too, everybody I know who's really smart is curious, Mm -hmm. you know, really bright, creative, interesting people are not resting on what they knew last year. Yeah, right. For me, I grew in terms of considering curiosity around writing The Path Between Us because it occurred to me while I was working on that book that we aren't even curious enough to ask one another why they think the way they think Mm -hmm. or how they arrived at their decisions about uh, relationships. It's just that can't be right because it doesn't, jive with what I think is right or what I think is correct or what works for me. Yeah. I also have had an experience where as a woman of 69, my curiosity at times is met by younger people with impatience. Oh, say more about that. What do you mean? Well, it's like, Oh, you don't, you don't get it. Uh Uh (laughs) or or, oh you're not gonna get it Uh uh and actually I'm trying to get it on a deeper level right you know Mm -hmm. sometimes I I walk away from those encounters and I think what what is it you think I didn't get Mm. that it matters to you that it's a part of your identity that you need that that you want to offer a part of yourself to somebody and they don't understand you. Like a lot of things uh, go into intergenerational dialogue. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to uh, uh, be particularly critical of people who are younger than I am because they experience the same thing with people my age. 
Sure. Right? Like yeah. it's a, it's a cross generational problem, but I think there are all these limits on curiosity. Curiosity requires time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, um, would love for you to share your definition of grace. And then I, I just want you to know that I want to follow that with talking about compassion. Well, gosh, grace is one of these words we can kind of throw around and never get around to actually defining, you know, I mean, which is what, I mean, the church does this all the time. Every subculture does this. There are words or phrases or terms that are, that people just sort of nod and go, oh, we all know what we mean by that. But it, there can be a sort of disintegration of the, of the meaning of the term if we don't stop to ever define it, you know? So just recently I've been describing grace as the freight train that delivers into my life all the beautiful and unearnable gifts like mercy, forgiveness, somebody like endless second chances, the perfect peach in summer, love. You, you can't earn these things, you know, there's no amount of virtue or good works that you can sort of rack up points with that will that then you earn the thing it's not like getting an, enough tickets at ski ball that you can then go and exchange them for the stuffed animal it that's not how it works like there are things that are delivered into our lives that you cannot do the math and go well it's because i deserve it or earn it and so that's what i think of with grace but i also think that grace is our actual source code i mean there was no there's no amount of virtue that can pull that sun up from the east every day and yet there it is and like i think creation itself was an act of absolute grace that god's love could not be contained and sort of overflowed the heavens and, cre and creation was manifest and that, um, you know, you look at, you look at this universe and those crazy, crazy images that we get from the Hubble telescope that, that go like, that show us how vast this universe is. I would have been a really great medieval person, like just totally comfortable with the dome you know, just like mm -hmm. what we can see is all there is because it freaks me out. I get fucking freaked out at those because it to think of how vast the universe is. You, we can't even conceive of it. And we've yet to find a place that had life somewhere else. Like what? Maybe it's out there and we don't know. It's either only here or real fucking rare. And so those are the two choices, really. And right. so the fact that we get to be here, like we get to be conscious beings on this on planet Earth and live a life and breathe air and love people and touch humans. And, you know, that there's puppies and there's watermelon and there's like uh, incredible movies. And <laughs> I don't know, just why in the world? Why do we get this? Like, and, 
and if this is all so rare, it just feels like grace. It's just gift, 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 gift. And if that is true, which I believe it is, why the fuck do I spend so much time being angry in traffic? Like, mm -hmm. we only get a few, a few minutes here. <laughs> like, right, right. Did you ever hear Richard Rohr tell the story about there's a place in Albuquerque that he had to travel by regularly? For those who don't know, he happens to their centers on Five Points Road, and there's a place where five roads come together. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a one on the Enneagram, he tells this story about the fact that he used to sit there and think about how poorly planned it was and how long it took him to be at that place and wait for everybody else and how <laughs> much of his life he was losing. And then he said that turned into the place where he learned so many of life's lessons. Once he <laughs> got over, it could have been different or better or mm. some other way, right? Mm. And I, I am so uh, slowed down these days. Mm. I can see again. Mm. Like I'm seeing so many things that I haven't seen, but I'm, I'm also mm. uh, kind of lost in them uh, in a way that feels good and reckless. <laughs> and wasteful. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Uh, and now let's take that lovely, wonderful, expansive definition of grace and talk about compassion. I um, think we're sorely lacking in the world. I want to be more compassionate. I want people to be more compassionate with me. In agreeing with you, I don't see much of it. What then shall we do? <laughs> well, I can't say it's always been my go-to response. It, 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 it's been my go-to response in my life if somebody is, is absolutely, truly a victim, like not a volunteer, a victim, like somebody who really is voiceless, who needs somebody to stand up for them, you know, then I, my whole life, I've sort of leaned into that. But in, if somebody falls into pretty much any other category, it's been more challenging for me. Um, I guess I have, it's been easier for me to, to, to show compassion to others, the more I realize how desperately I need people to be compassionate towards me. And, um, I mean, it's the same with, with grace. Like I, it's easier for me to show grace to other people when I can look at how much it's been extended to me in my life. So I don't know. I, 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 I as I've been known to say recently, um, I'm not really interested in compassion as a virtue. I'm pretty suspicious of virtue peddling. Mm -hmm. um, this idea of, oh, if you just adopt this virtue, you'll be a better person. <laughs> Never, ever worked for me. So, but I'm really, really fascinated in what, what's the effect of compassion. Mm -hmm. That I'm interested in, the reality, the actual effect. How does my body feel different if I feel compassion towards someone than if I have judgment towards them? How does how does my being shift, soften when somebody truly is in a space of compassion towards me? I mean, it's all about 
accusing people, pointing out every single mistake, not allowing someone to possibly use the wrong word or else you're taken out like trash. I mean, the harshness of it. And, you know, my friend Jacob Smith's an Episcopal priest in New York, and he goes, look, we're all three bad days away from being an internet scandal. And most of us are already on day two, you know? And I'm like, yeah, like fucking relax. It's your turn next, man. Live by the call out, die by the call out, you know? But, but like, it's, that works, that kind of energy, that aggressive sort of like, here's what's problematic about this person or this event or this tradition or blah, blah, blah. It, it's, it's effective for feeling pride. It's effective in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's effective in, in change because the, that institution, that tradition, that person is now so has been so shamed that they're like, Oh, what I'll do or say, whatever quiver, I'll be this quivering mass of regret and I'll just capitulate to the whole thing. And maybe, well, that's not true change. That's just fear. That's just fear. And so, yeah, maybe you can get that out of it. But like, I just know for myself when somebody has looked at, has been curious about my whole story, not just one moment, not just one word, one mistake, but the whole thing, and they look at it and they go, oh, of course you said that. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mean it didn't cause harm? No, 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 no. Does that mean, oh, the shitty thing I said wasn't hurtful in some way or regrettable or probably I shouldn't have done it? No, no, no. All those things are true, right? Those remain. And with compassion, somebody can go, oh, Nadia, God, of course you said that. And then when there's that space, I can go, oh, shit, what have I done, right? But if somebody goes, starts accusing me, pointing a finger, calling out, I immediately become defensive. I'm like, fuck you. Like, you're going to get nowhere in terms of a softening or repentance. And so if what we want is a, a more just society, a more compassionate society, uh, a society where people are honored and listened to and and that those who need help are given help and those who need to give help give it like if that's what we want i just wonder if we can't shift a couple clicks in the direction of going oh shit of course i get it i get it i get it and then the other person has the opportunity to go oh what have i done it just feels more effective i don't know how long ago you shared with me a story about being at an event and you were asked to introduce Lance Armstrong. Oh, to have a conversation on stage with him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I love this story so, so much. Mm. Um, so I'm going to tell you what I remember of just the lead into it. And then I would love for you to talk about that a little bit. The lead in was when people found out that you were going to have a conversation with him on stage many people said, you go get him. Yeah. And then uh, you got on stage. And will you take it from there? Yeah, yeah. So everyone's like, don't let him off easy. I'm like, well, gosh, um, just to be clear, pastor, not investigative journalist, right? First of all, like, what are you expecting from me? <laughs> Time to put Holy you on shit. trial. Oh, my God. Yeah. But um, I just really thought I just had some curiosity about what is that in us that that 
craves somebody falling from grace and everyone agreeing, yes, they're the problem. They did this bad thing. And then having them, you know, put on trial of public opinion about like, oh, we love it. Like there's something in us that just savors that. We think it's delicious. And I'm like, what is the thing? And I really, I really do think that it's the fact that we need somebody to carry it for us. Like I never have to look at when in my own life I've taken an unfair advantage because thank God I have Lance Armstrong to carry that for me because we all agree he's worse. Like we might, because there's nothing better than like, if I'm a little bit bad, I fucking love it when something who, somebody who's clearly bad comes along. Right. Because right. then we, we just get to put all of our, that ickiness in us that builds up about knowing we exaggerated something. We, we weren't fair about something. We gossiped, whatever that is, just all that icky stuff just builds up and builds up. And then we just wait for someone to come along that we can all point our fingers at and go, how dare you? <laughs> you know? and we put all of our built up little icky things, you know, and we just put them all on them and then we kill them. And you know, there's a theological term for it. It's called scapegoating, right? We love that shit. And so that night at the Nantucket project, I just opened with, Hey, um, Hey Lance, I see from my notes that, uh, that you took drugs you weren't supposed to, and you lied about it. And then I went, Oh my God, I did that shit so many times. Like literally, do not know how many times in my life I took drugs I was not supposed to and lied about it. And then I made the whole audience raise their hand. I was like, all right, you guys, like, if you ever in your life took drugs you weren't supposed to and lied about it, raise your hand. Everyone raised their hands. The point is, um, to me, that was meeting him in compassion. And I asked him about his upbringing. You know, his mom was 16 when she had him, and they struggled their whole lives. It was them against the world. And they were poor. And you know, I mean, there were, there's all these things. We know this much about Lance Armstrong's life. And then that's all he is to us and fuck him. And it's like, I'm not saying he's wonderful. I'm not saying all of these things he did were not harmful to people. I'm saying Lance Armstrong never did shit to me. You know, <laughs> not one thing. Now, I mean, it's not that I, I just keep saying, can we please separate the harm of someone's actions from the humanity of the person mm. who took the actions. Yeah. But, um, it, like, it's not a choice between telling the truth of the harm and having compassion for the person who caused the harm. We don't have to actually, it's not either or. So um, I think we can call people to account. We can enumerate the actual harm that people's actions and words have caused. And absolutely, that's not unimportant. But I don't think that as soon, as soon as someone is seen as having caused harm, that they need to be taken out like trash and canceled and all of that. I just, I, I it's just so, that's terrifying to me because I, then you're, who, when is it your turn? Yeah. Jeez. One of the conversations that comes up a lot on my favorite radio station here in the Dallas Metroplex, Sports Radio 1310, 96.7 FM, The Ticket, <laughs> is uh, they talk about when someone 
Mm. When someone gets found out, so kind of, kind of similar to the Lance Armstrong situation, but different. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they've done, let's say, a ton of great things, or they're just really incredible at what they do, a really great artist, whatever. Right. Then something comes out about them. Then everyone is like, well, now we can't. It's all bad. What is the theological view on that? Can you talk about that a little bit? Can you teach me a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, there was actually a, an early church heresy. Oh, God. Was it Marcionism? can't remember what it's called. It's just escaped me right now. But what happened was, you know, during the sort of early persecutions of the Christians, the, the, the people who kind of hightailed it out or capitulated or, you know, um, denounced the faith so they and their families could survive. Once things settled down, um, there was this question in the church, what do we do with people who, who did not stand firm during this time? And there was a group of people who decided that any clergy person who, who, um, who did not go through that persecution perfectly as they saw it uh, would no longer be able to celebrate Eucharist because the sacraments were only efficacious if they were presided over by somebody who was not a sinner in that way. And uh, it was deemed a heresy eventually because the church got got, uh, you know, smart to the fact that there would be literally no sacraments if we could only receive sacraments that were presided over by people without sin. So it was, it, it is something that Christianity has struggled with before. Like, um, you know, are, are you allowed to enjoy Michael Jackson music now that we know these horrible things about his behavior before he died. Um, I mean, I think everyone has to kind of work that thing out with fear and trembling, but, but I think that uh, how big, how powerful of a microscope are we going to get when we're assessing whether somebody's work has value apart from their failings? Like where's the, where's it stop? You know, is there a clear bright line somewhere? (laughs) Because there is no, you know, some of our civil rights leaders, some of our you know, our founding fathers, there were so many examples of people who, who did things that, that had such a positive effect, either artistically or politically or socially or in terms of literature or whatever. And they had this real, they had these shadow sides that were horrible. Everybody has a shadow side. And so at what point do we decide, well, then your work has no value if we discover yours is one degree, you know, worse than the other guy. He's fine. But you know, I don't know. It just, <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's important to tell the truth. Like Martin Luther said, a theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is, which I love. It's such a simple statement. The theolo- a theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is and so i think it's important to call a thing what it is if somebody if somebody's behavior has caused harm that we can call that what it is but i don't think that then the next move is to say that none of their work had value they should never be allowed to work again you know whatever i mean where is that balance where there's there's truth telling and justice and yet also mercy and grace and two things can be true. 
Yeah. His music can be really good, creative, wonderful music. And he did these things. It, yeah, it, is, a, it is a world mm-hmm. where two things can be true. Well, for those of you who haven't heard the confessional yet, I'm sad for you. But um, one of the things that happens at the end of every episode is uh, Nadia writes and offers, or just offers because that's how good she is, a blessing. And in uh, listening to the blessings and reading other prayers that you write and having been present when you've prayed, um, I'm aware, finally, that I think the magic is in how you hear. It's like I kept saying to myself, how does she, how, how does she respond with this? Mm. How is she responding this way? How does she know to do that and say that, but let this one not be part of that? How? how? And it occurs to me that my work has everything to do with how people see. Your blessings, I would suppose, have everything to do with how you hear. Does that ring true to you? Oh, I never thought of it like that. I'll have to think about that. I mean, so often what people need as a blessing in their life or what they need in terms of prayer is already present in their own words. So it's not that somebody has to magically create something totally external to them and offer it. I mean, so often what I've done in these benedictions is remind people what they said and to say, and then to show them, this is, you already have everything you need, that type of thing. So um, that's a priestly function, I think, to me. Rather, I think people think the priestly thing is to like, oh, you have some magic external thing that only you get to offer. But really, it is just a, a different way of seeing the world and offering that to people. The other thing I'll tell you about those benedictions, and when I said it scratches my preaching itch, is that I'm doing the same thing with the these interviews as I did when I was preaching more regularly. But the the conversation and the person is the text. That's the text that I'm studying in order to figure out what is the word that I can offer, you know, based on yeah, it. And so yeah. I I meditate. I mean, I listen to those interviews over and over. I pray about the person. I mean, I, I really do kind of really marinate in that whole thing in order to have something come to me that feels like a real blessing. So it's a similar process, actually. One of the reasons I think it's because how you hear is one day uh, you were here staying with us for a couple of days and you were working on your sermon. And I, I was fascinated by the whole process. And I said, oh, wow, I have a story that would be so great. And you said, oh, no, 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 no. I only tell my own stories. No, no, not doing that. And I learned so much in that moment about when, how, where do I have the space to tell somebody else's story. And what I learned from you in that time was that I can tell the story of what I learned from somebody else's story. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, right. But that's a different thing. It a is. completely different thing. Yeah. You know, when I had interns at House for All Sinners and Saints, I would always go over their sermon manuscript with them before they preached. 
and I would say one of the one of the notes I gave all of them the most frequently was you don't have to borrow someone else's authority to speak stop quoting Barbara Brown Taylor she's not the pastor of this congregation <laughs> you know you have something there that, that that's yours to offer and uh, I get frustrated when I read people's it somebody's writing a memoir and all they do is quote other people you know what I mean and I'm yeah. like it's okay if there's some wisdom you want to offer that was so meaningful to you. But I fear that what people do is they feel like they have to borrow someone else's authority in order to have, feel like they're, he, they, that they're worth listening to. Right. I don't think that's, that's true. You know, and the, I guess the other part of what you're talking about in my own process is that like I, you know, I've said a million times the the people at house for all sinners and saints, my former parish said that they they loved having a preacher who clearly preached to herself and let them overhear it. And it's a different kind of authority, I guess, because um, all I ever, when you talk about listening, I, and, you know, there is that Parker Palmer, like, listening to your life thing, but I, I do, I listen to what is, is, is there something that is harming me that has gone unspoken that I could put words to that is there is there a pride that I'm that I'm disguising as something else is there what is you know what's the thing under the thing for myself what do I struggle with what do I need and I guess it's an oddly self-centered way to go about work but it's so far so good you know like I've been writing prayers on Sundays or sermons that I just post during the pandemic uh, if I have them, but but I made a promise to myself that I would only ever write the things I needed to hear, and or that I felt like the people who are in my life needed to hear, and that I wouldn't fancy myself as prophetic. Do you know what I mean? It's pastoral and it's and it's personal. So, like if if they end up being meaningful to other people, that feels like a bonus. But if I veer off into I need to figure out what would be meaningful for all these strangers on the internet to hear me say today, oh my God, we've gotten off the yellow brick road now. Right. You know? <laughs> like that's, that's not safe. Yeah. And not, uh, not vulnerable in any way. Mm. And I think we learn the most from one another's vulnerability, mm -hmm. whether or not it's long-term experience or in the moment. Yeah, just just realness. You know what's interesting? I, I, I Skyped in with a seminary class a couple weeks ago, and one of the students had a question that I just had never thought about, but I, I thought you probably have. She said something about how earlier my work, I w I've always been kind of transparent as a public person, but I haven't always been vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And I'd never thought about the difference between these two things. Mm -hmm. And then I, so now I'm like, oh gosh, yeah, I knew she was right. And, and I thought, I just never thought of the difference. And I think, I, I think before I was I, like, I've always been transparent, but now I feel like much more vulnerable. But have you thought of the difference between those two things before? Yeah. And I, um, so I want to tell you about something that happened about you that you don't know about. Uh, remember when you and Joe went horseback riding? Yes. And yeah. it happened that the 
place where Joe gets to ride and our friends had like a, a hundred puppies or oh something. Yes. There were puppies everywhere. Yeah. We had been there for a while and you played with puppies and you rode and we were getting ready to go and you went back out to see the puppies and Joe turned to me and said, what is our responsibility in protecting all of that vulnerability in her that's starting to show itself. <laughs> I think you've always been generous. I think being transparent is generous. Mm -hmm. People in recovery who are doing their work and who are working all the steps are transparent about their life experience and their addiction. Mm -hmm. The vulnerability, I think, is about when you share what it costs you. I think that's absolutely right. And, and I think that you can be transparent about your failings, about things you regret, about stuff, that, inelegant truths about yourself without being emotionally present to any of it. To be emotionally present to it is vulnerable, not just transparent. Just to take one more moment of looking at recovery, after reading Shameless and then The Soul of Shame, you know, they say that no, a, there's no A recovery meeting or whatever is a bad one. Attending one, there's no bad ones. And I was like, yeah, there kind of are. <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. <laughs> <laughs> what I am working with right now is the ones that I go to that are like, I guess that was a good meeting. You know, I kind of feel like I could have done something better with my time. Mm. Are the ones where people like where are transparent like you just described but the meeting, there was no vulnerability in a meeting. There's a different potency to it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like you could be at a dinner party where people are talking about their lives, but as soon as somebody drops into their emotional truth about the thing, that's vulnerable. Yeah. It's not just PR. I mean, the other thing about transparency is... Uh, you know, people who are transparent about their lives and write memoir and stuff, it can actually be a pretty finely executed PR scheme because I that way you can cop cop to a misdemeanor so there's not a felony on your record, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Joe says uh he and his priest friends say that in the Catholic confessional, mm -hmm. one of the things that they witness over and over and over is People might confess four things or five things or three things, but the thing is always next to last. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they do a few things and then the thing and then another little thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 All right, before we move to uh before we move to Shameless, I want to talk about one more thing from the podcast. Mm. Uh, and I probably want to talk to you about this forever. So not today, but I, I know it's going to come up again and again in my world. So I want to talk about the sexy guitar player for a minute. You're going to need to give some context here for the <laughs> listeners. Well, um, Nadia is uh, in love with and loved by a sexy guitar player who doesn't play the guitar much anymore, but he's still sexy. Yeah, correct. So you said, and this is another quote. When I realized, he, he asked you at one point, when did you forgive me or how did you forgive me? 
And you said, I forgave you when I realized that my feelings were not the result of your actions, but that my feelings were the result of the story I was telling myself about your actions. Mm -hmm. That is my life. Mm -hmm. And um, the story that I tell myself about other people's actions always has them leaving me because of me. Oh, wow. Shit. Yes. And you know, I've, I've been in therapy for years dealing with adoption and uh, some abandonment stuff, but that those words put together that way have just started a new mantra for me. And I'm just using it constantly. And I'm saying over and over, what's happening? And how is that different from what I'm telling myself is happening? Oh, my God. Absolutely. Because the suffering for me, my suffering is almost always a result of the story I'm telling myself rather than the thing itself. Yeah. Right. It is changing me. It's changing me, and I, I, I guess maybe I've already journaled 50 pages on that. Mm. So th- from my heart to yours, thank you. Mm. And I hope everybody who struggles with that will really think about the difference yeah. in, in somebody else's actions and the stories that they're telling themselves about somebody else's actions. Right. You know, I want to read you this thing. If somebody, let me find it uh, real quick. I texted it to my, my best friend, Jody, so I know it's right here, but I want to get it right. It was this thing I, I just saw online. It was so simple. It was like a meme, and it just punched me in the gut. Some of you still carry the wounds of being mistreated by parents or partners. I hope you know that not everyone is annoyed with you. Not everyone is upset with you. Not everyone is rooting for you to fail. Grant yourself the same kindness you give to others. And that just hit me in the gut because, Suzanne, I go through so much of my life afraid that people are mad at me, assuming people are mad at me all the time. All the time. It's like my my closest friends know that I have this. And... Um, and will sometimes just gently remind me that's probably not what's happening. But I think, you know, when you have certain things happen when you're young, they just get wired in your brain, you know, like that. And it's just here I am 51 years old and going, um, you know, maybe if somebody's mad at me, that might be true. And it's their responsibility to probably let me know that because I can, I can have in my mind create all the reasons why they're probably mad at me or misunderstood something I said, or, you know, um, it's a lot of bandwidth unnecessarily taken up, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. When you were last on the podcast and as people have listened to this one, this one's more of the the journey podcast than the Anagram part of this podcast, which is great, which is why it's so aptly named. What have you learned from people since the release of Shameless? 
Um, I learned that it was it was strong. That book was strong medicine for the people for whom I wrote it, and um, really offensive to the people for whom I did not write it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've realized that. <laughs> um, I learned that that there are so many folks who have been carrying a very heavy weight that the church has given them and just needed someone to go, hey, that looks like maybe it was handed to you and you don't have to carry it around anymore. And they put it down. They're so grateful. Um, I think that there's so much work to be done in that area of shame and in sexuality and sexual flourishing and um that i i can't wait to see where other people go with it you know it mine was just like i feel like i could barely clear my throat in that book you know mm -hmm. there's so much more to say so for a start i would say those are the things that i've realized since it came out a moment ago, you said that it was well received for the pe by the people that you wrote it for, mm -hmm. and not so much by the people you didn't write it for. Mm -hmm. So my question is, how it's a before and after. You're you know that you're very polarizing, and how did that you know having those comments? You know that they're coming. How did that used to affect you versus how does that affect you now? Well, I kind of I think it's so funny that I'm polarizing. I think I'm most polarizing to people who've never actually engaged my work. I think they're very, very offended by the idea of me um, and just by the swear words, I guess, and how I look. Because you like, talked about on the last podcast, you know, how, what you've learned about yourself as an eight. People who don't know any better, they'd be like, oh, eights are so tough. And they, get, you know, they just can take it when people, again, get their Twitter muscles going and take shots at them. Oh, no, no. The reason eights are so, um, seem so strong and so like, fuck you. And like, I can take it and I don't care what you think of me. It's clearly to protect a profound sensitivity under it. I mean, it, it really is. And, and I think I've just become less afraid of the sensitivity that's there. I, I don't feel as protective of myself as I used to. And part of that comes from just being sort of well-loved in the past few years. It's just kind of softened that stuff for me but um i mean i a few things one one thing i realized is that uh, early on is that my my fans and and my detractors are both passionate groups of people <laughs> and uh and they're also equally distant from the truth so i it's you know, <laughs> <so, laughs> good like i kind of realized that but also the reason you need to understand the reason I don't read the comments is not because I don't care. The reason I, do, I don't read the comments is because they affect me more than I'm, than I'd like to admit or than I feel comfortable with. And, um, and that's why I don't read them. So am I affected by people's shitty, the shitty things people say about me? Um, of course I am. Like, if you cut me, I bleed, you know? Um, but, and that just feels like a useless waste of my emotional energy. So as much as I can possibly avoid them, I do. But it's hard, you know, when you put yourself out there, every time I've written a book or even just this podcast, it you can hear my puppy in the back. Um, That's all good. Every, every 
um, every time I do that, it, you know, this podcast felt like I scooped out parts of myself and I, then I just put them out for public consumption. And then I, and then I'm like, is this, is this worth something? Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like here's all my insights. Is it, is that worth even looking at or listen or spending a, I don't know. Is it, is it worth three stars? I don't know. You know, like you're just like allowing people to judge you, assess you. How many stars is this worth? And Oh, it's vulnerable. It's horrible. I mean, every time I've put out a book or, or put this podcast out, um, I'm a wreck. I'm a wreck. I mean, I, it's, it's a horrible feeling. And, um, and I think it, it, it ties into that, like, people are always mad at me thing, you know, or mm-hmm, something. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it, it, the vulnerability is just, you're so exposed. And, and I know that there are people out there who really like to try to sabotage. It's not, it's, this isn't paranoia. I mean, there are people, mm-hmm. you know, that I know that the, the rating on iTunes for this podcast was like 4.3. There's so many one-star ratings. Like, this is an extremely well-produced piece of audio that um, there's no way out of the 750,000 podcasts out there, somebody's going to listen to those 25 minutes of audio and go, fuck man, that is definitely a one star, right? Yep. There's no way. There's something behind it. There's a spitefulness kind of behind it. And look, there's a dude who bought my legal name as a URL and it's nothing but hate about me. There's so much out there, but it is minuscule compared to the great, to the gratitude that people express for the work. And if I choose to dwell in the negative, it's a, that's what it is. It's a choice and it's not a healthy choice, but it's also not a healthy choice to, to soak up the praise all the time. You know, that's, that's, that's a fickle lover as well. Why do you keep digging deep and laying yourself out on the table and saying, here it is. Here it is on behalf of all the people who've been shamed regarding their innate desire for sex. Here's for all the people who have no voice, who just want to tell you a little bit about who they are in terms of why Christian, and they still believe in God. Like no matter what you've done, these people still believe in God and I do too. What keeps you in it? Well, I just think at 51, it's too old to go through job training. So I don't know what the fuck else am I going to do? Really committed to this path. (laughs) (laughs) What the hell else am I going to do? I'm literally, I'm a one... Look, I, I can you imagine one- going to the Apple store and the genius that you get is Nadia Bolsweber? Yeah. The- <laughs> oh my God. I'm like, before we start, could you just tell me the worst thing you've ever done? Yeah. <laughs> so you brought in your nano today. And, oh, so awesome. I don't, I only know how to do the one thing I've just kind of parlayed it into videos and podcasts and sermons and events, I guess, but it's all one thing. It seems like the embodied gift and curse of being an Enneagram eight. Absolutely. If, if I if I were on that path, I'd be figuring out a new career path. I wouldn't stick around for that. Yeah, I I also uh, think that your dad's right. 
And when he talks about Nadia, he says that she is one pastor that he knows who was for sure called because she's such a good theologian. It helps when you're awesome at it. That's for sure. (laughs) Well, what I would say, what I would say is how much of this is called, like how much of it is you thinking I'm going to go work at the genius bar and God saying, Nope, 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 Nope. Well, I can say I I didn't vision board it. <laughs> you know, I didn't. Yeah, it's not I a storyboard. No, I, didn't, I didn't get together with my girlfriends on January 1st, 10 years ago, and be like. I got my dream journal. <laughs> <laughs> so it, um, it's messy. I mean, it, I think it's tricky to be, to talk, talking about call is tricky, talking about god using you for stuff eh, it's just perilously close to like spiritual self-flattery and and um and delusion and i mean it's just hard that stuff is hard but uh but i i don't know my eric just keeps saying you know you're you're a hollow bone you're just you're just a messenger and 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 i think the reason i keep trusting it a little bit is just um, it I just keep managing to say things I need to hear that's all I ever have done you know and I I keep being somebody who needs to hear certain things and then I keep being somebody who can articulate those and the fact that those end that ends up being what other people need to hear is gorgeous and that I get to make a living doing this is a mm-hmm. But that's that's truly all it is. Now, if I if I spiritual, you know, if I progressively sanctify myself into Christian perfection, uh, my yeah. career will be over. You know, yeah. I'll have I'll have nothing I need to hear anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's quick. It's a it's a short trip. <laughs> <laughs> it's the return trip that is a bastard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, um. One of the things I would like to just open the door for you and Joel to maybe talk about is that as I know both of you, I would say this. Very few people can out love me. Like I I can flat love people. Mm -hmm. And very few people catch me when I'm being irrationally judgmental and you too do. And I think you do it because of your journeys. My uh, journey is people are going to leave. And that journey means that you have to wait a long time to look inside yourself to get to your own stuff because you've got these other bones that you can hang your pain on. Mm. And you two uh, have hung your pain on your own bones enough that you see it in other people. You see pain that I don't see. You have compassion where I don't even know it's necessary. So what I want to hear you two talk about a little bit is what is it that happens in the recovery that you two have been through where you wake up with a bigger heart than the one you had before. Like it seems 
my language, maybe not yours, is big hearted. It seems so big hearted for people who are behaving badly. I think when you see your own bad behavior and you do the work of naming what pain it is hiding, covering up for, maybe it just makes it easier to see that in other people. And it's not my go-to, Suzanne. You've been around me long enough to know my 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 initial response to people is "fuck you." It's it's always like you're an idiot or you're being ridiculous or you're you know that whole like being able to see what somebody's covering up for can can lean either into complete judgment because i see it clearly and you're not naming it and it's obvious to me so until we can deal with reality i'm not dealing with you or it can lean into compassion of oh man i see this thing that you're covering up for Uh the same instinct it can go either direction i don't know what do you what do you think i think part of it is just the idea the mentality Mm -hmm. of like when you first started that that question, uh-huh. I started thinking, man, usually it's you're having a rough day or a rough morning. <laughs> and so it's so it's you about know, you, mom. <laughs> I mean, just point that out. I guess for me, it's twofold. One in that I know in part of my journey when I had to actually look back at my own actions and behavior over years, it was that I would look at people until I reached like the, whatever judgment I gave them, then I would up the bar. Like, well, at least I'm not that. Mm-hmm. And then after I hit that, well, I could find someone else. At least I'm not that. And then I'd raise the bar again once I reached that until I finally, you know, kind of bottomed out. And you can't, I realized that you, it's a very childish thing to learn or that children need to learn is that you're not better than anybody else, man. We just had a conversation last week with an Enneagram 8 who uh, has, was a, an apprentice of Suzanne's. But I asked her, I was like, hey, we're going to talk with Nadia next week. If you were to ask her one question, like what, what would you want to ask her? And her question was, when does it get better? When does it become okay? Oh, gosh. All I can say is it keeps getting better. Like, I don't know that there's some bright line where better lies. I think our definition of what better means shifts and then suddenly we're there. Not because we arrived to the destination exactly as we had it set out in our mind, but just we changed what we thought the destination was. So I don't know. I don't know that there's an answer for that other than I would not be... An, a female Enneagram 8 in my 20s and 30s again for all the money in the world. It's just so hard. So I've got Enneagram 7 privilege. I've just, I'm creating a list of all the privilege that I have, and now I can put male Enneagram 7 on that. Yep. It's yeah, a different thing. It's a different thing. No, being a female 8 is rough, you know? I mean, just that feeling of having to fight everything and everyone and defend myself and protect myself and, um, you know, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. One of the things that female eights uh, talk about and experience is betrayal. Mm. It has to do with their lost message and it frequently... And the first time I saw that document, Mm-hmm. That was like, and it said, I will not be betrayed. I mm-hmm. fucking cried. Yeah. 
It's big. It is really, really big. So this is a big question. How has your relationship to betrayal changed in recent years? Well, obviously so much of it is wrapped up in my relationship with Eric because that was a massive, you know, he, he met somebody when we were together in our early twenties, you know, his band was on tour and he met a girl he spent the weekend with in Seattle and came home and broke up with me and, and uh, was with her instead. And they actually got married. But um, again, I think that it's the story I tell myself about what the betrayal means about me, my value, my lovability, how trustworthy the world is. It's that that causes the pain so much more than the person's action does. So I, I really think it's tied up into that again, you know. Yeah. Not, and that doesn't mean it won't continue to hurt, but it doesn't have to hold quite as much suffering as it has before. Do you anticipate it less as you get older? I, I'm not sure older is the thing as you. Yeah, I think so, but it's still there. I mean, if uh, it can really, it is, it, it can be a huge trigger for me, for mm-hmm. sure. You know, that's still there. I can say it has not gone away. Yeah. One of the things that I love, though, about your story is, and kind of what you're sharing about, Eric, is the hope that it gives not only for AIDS, but also for the rest of us. Like, I don't know, Mom, you talk about how AIDS will trust, you know, a limited number of people in their life, and that's it. And if you lose the trust, it's out. And, you know, it seems like there, there might be, there is a, some gray area there hearing things like what you're saying just kind of gives, gives hope to the rest of us. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think um, maybe that I need to amend how I talk about that to say that uh, for people who are doing their work on both sides of that, if you were on the list and you betrayed an eight and you got marked off, if you're doing your work and the eight's doing his or her work, you can get back on the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you got to do some work. Mm-hmm. I don't watch very many movies that I'm not ready for them to be over. I don't, I've read some books that I wish would keep going, but not too many. I don't hear podcasts, most podcasts that I really like. I think, okay, well, I bet this is starting to wind down. You certainly hit a sweet spot in the timing for yours because you are leaving them wanting more at the end of every one of them. It's like, Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. I have so much. I, I want so much more. Mm-hmm. So I was very taken with your podcast with Megan Phelps rope. Uh, for those of you who don't know and haven't listened yet to the confessional, Uh, her grandfather started Westboro Baptist Church. She says, we were especially cruel at funerals. And then she says, there is nothing I can do to undo what I did. I think people are carrying so much shame because there is nothing they can do to undo what they did. Mm -hmm. What, what 
is the antidote for that? Well, you know, in AA, we talk about <clears throat> a living amends. A living amends means that you live in a way on a daily basis that is an amends for your previous behavior, in a sense. And so the same thing came up with Lenny Duncan's um, confession, where he was like, um, you know, he was not present for the first 13 years of his daughter's life. And, and, and just because he is now, just because he's been a father to her since she was 13, that does not undo the harm for all those days that he should have been in that child's life and he wasn't. But it's a living amends. I think that there is something to that. I mean, if we just throw up our hands and go, well, there's nothing we can do. But I, I believe that Megan is living a, a living amends. I think Chris Schumacher, who stabbed his friend to death, you know, over a five pound bag of weed. And, you know, that he was the third or fourth, ep third episode, I think. He, he's living, he is a living amends he is, as best he can. And like, sometimes the things that, in our lives that haunt us the words the actions the things that we carry a lot of shame and guilt about um if if looked at a certain way and if we're on a certain path our our origin story for the for the sort of flawed clunky superheroes we become later in life you mm -hmm. know i mean that I mean, I have a I have an interview I did that's coming out in the second season where somebody just carries so much shame about when they were an addict, they weren't able to take care of this dog they had, you know, and, um, you know, the dog got into some cocaine that was on their table and was running around the apartment and he gave it to some guy up in the Bronx and it ends up he was just kind of staked to this dirt patch in the front of the yard. It was just, it was terrible. He feels horrible. And in the scheme of things, it's, it's bad, but it's not the worst thing, you know, and yet he carries so much of it around. And oh, my God, since that time, this was 30 years ago or so, he wrote a book about a dog that has like touched hundreds of thousands of children. He he's been on the board of directors of the Innocence Project for 25 years, helping get innocent people out of prison. He he helps fund fund uh, this organization that that gets uh, inmates of prisons to train rescue dogs so that they can be adopted. I mean, the, the number of things that has come out of this dude's life and like in weird ways, they're traceable back to this thing where he was the worst version of himself, but it was the realization of that, 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 that allowed him to become who he is today. Mm -hmm. That's why I want to hear people's stories. It's not like, it's not because it's salacious to me. It's because, hey, there's an origin to who you became. And I'm super curious about that, you know? I don't think it um, is a fair question. But I'd like for you to, um, to try to give some peace uh, to people who are really, really, really struggling with sexual sin. I, I've thought about it a lot because uh, we were there when you released Shameless here and did the event here in Dallas. And it was so cathartic for so many people and so lovely and wonderful. And every time I pick up the book or 
pass it on the bookshelf or see it, I think. I, I wonder how you give that to people so that it's kind of like, okay, we're wrapping it up now. That thing you did, you get to leave right here. And then we're mm -hmm. going to dance and then you get to go home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think for, for my generation and the one just ahead of me and the one just behind me, sexual sin is the thing. It's the thing that people carry mm -hmm. and never confess. Hmm. What would you say to those people? Well, I think that when we are given messages in God's name, it goes to a very deep place within us. It can, it can, it can deposit a toxin in mm -hmm. us um, that goes to such a deep place that we cannot dig it out by our own hand. And, um, and that so often, let's just say when I was in my parish and somebody wanted to confess to me something that was what they considered a sin of a sexual nature, I would have a lot of curiosity about it because I'm like, is it that you have this horrible thing that has a terrible effect in your life? Or is it that the messages you received about sexuality from the church dug into such a deep part of you that it triggers shame in you every time you're a sexual person? Mm -hmm. That's different. That's different. So I think seeing the origin of where all this comes from, because I mean, that's why I always go back to the Garden of Eden story, because what we learn is that, um, you know, when Adam and Eve were suddenly ashamed, they were naked and unashamed. And then they listened to a voice that was not God's tell them about God. And then they were ashamed. And then they covered themselves. And God's like, hey, where are you guys? And they're like, we're hiding and ashamed and naked. And God's like, hold on. Who told you you were naked? And I'm always like, man, my money is on the snake. It's always the snake. And so that story tells us that shame has an origin and it isn't God. That shame doesn't come from God. It comes from voices who say they are speaking for God and that that is different. And to be able to do that work in our lives is so important for those of us who have been given very harmful, toxic messages in God's name. So I think that's a great place to start. Go, hey, this thing you have, this feeling of shame you have about yourself or about your desires or your body or what you've done or what you like or whatever, what's the origin of it? What's the origin? Nine times out of 10, it's a fucking youth minister. I swear to God, the interviews I did for a year and a half, people, it wasn't even their parents. Sometimes not even like their priest. It was the youth minister. So, hey, bless youth ministers. But in certain sectors, they can deliver such toxic messages so that they can feel like they're righteous and putting these kids on the right path. So um, I think just getting into that, like, hey, what is the actual origin of it? And if, it's, if it is a teaching, uh, can you do work in letting it go and go, this wasn't even me? Because I do believe that people human beings, part of our birthright is sexual flourishing, mm -hmm. is for that part of our lives to be good, for mm -hmm. it to be a good, beautiful thing that gives us life. 
And how can we encourage that in, in as many people as possible? I guess that's what I got. The Reverend Stabile and I agree totally. <laughs> yeah. All right, here's my last uh, last comment question. In the confessional with Teresa Timms, the two of you talked about recovery, and you said the idea that you are powerless is so countercultural. Yeah. And since power seems to be at the center of everything, I would love to hear you talk a bit about that statement. The idea that you're powerless is so countercultural. Yeah. I mean, that's the flip side of the self-help movement, you know. That's why I was joking, like, I want to write an anti-self help book called You're Not Enough. There is enough. <laughs> <laughs> there is enough. You'll be fine. It doesn't, it's not you. Jesus, it's not you. So it co goes back to that thing about grace I was talking to earlier that grace is our origin. What I meant by that is like, it's also, I meant it's our source. So if it's our source, it means we, we have something upon which that we can draw up from, that we can draw upon that is not just us and our limited resources and our limited compassion, and our limited patience and love and forgiveness. Um, I, so tapping that to me, spirituality is just like tapping into a source, that source from which we came and to which we go. It's our destination as well. And so um, I don't have enough love, but I have a source that I can draw upon um, that, that provides what I am, the love I need in this life. And so um the same with grace, the same with forgiveness. And so um, that that's why a completely sort of atheist view is, is hard for me. I don't care what language you have for it, but um, I don't think we're enough. You know, we don't have all the power we need. If you're in the throes of addiction, good luck just like mustering up self-control, you know, at that point. I mean, that's why people look at you and go like, hey, why don't, where's your willpower? Well, it's not enough. <laughs> there's, there's not enough willpower. You have to have another power. You have to have a power that's greater than you. So I think it, it is really countercultural to go, no, man, I, I am, I'm standing in the prayer here, mm -hmm. you know, that, that I really do have to draw upon God on my source. Uh, to get through, to be the person that even vaguely approximates the kind of person I want to be, you know, mm -hmm. it all, it all comes from that. And, um, and, and ultimately because of that, um, I, I, I actually have more hope, you know, like I, I don't, I have no, I have no idealism about human beings, but I'm totally idealistic about what God can accomplish through us, uh, the way that God can redeem us, the way that that um, God's spirit can fall upon two people and reconcile them. You know, that I have idealism about. But when it's just us and our efforts and our 
fucking egos and pride and schemes. No, man, I've got no hope there. <laughs> um, all right, these are my final words. Nadia, I love you. I love you so much, Suze. And I'm so grateful that we're on the planet at the same time. Well, me too. You've loved me very well over these years. Right back at you. Thank you for this. Yeah.